Hey everyone, this is Jose Nino with El Nino Speaks again. I am back with the legendary Thomas777. For those who missed out on my previous interview with Thomas777, make sure to check out that one once you've finished listening to this episode. That, uh, the episode in question is El Nino Speaks 32, Why You Need Historical Revisionism in Your Life. I will attach that interview in the show notes. Hey, Thomas, how are things going with you, man? I'm very well. Thanks for hosting me once again. It's always a pleasure. So Israel, Palestine, yeah, that's been like the talk for nearly two weeks after the Hamas attack that was launched against Israel on October 7th. There has been lots of hysteria on both sides with the usual crappy takes being disseminated across every media outlet under the sun. Based on what you've studied on this latest clash in this seemingly inconclusive conflict, what's your overall impression of the situation in Israel? Well, it's, my, it's what I said at the onset of hostilities. Israel's real weakness here is Netanyahu himself. It's not a military frailty, and it's not the fact that they're not in a position to wage a general war owing to, you know, a shortage of the munitions they need for, you know, the standoff weapons that constitute the Iron Dome, as they call it, or whatever. And it's not even the fact that, you know, global opinion, particularly in the global south, is kind of permanently arrayed against Israel. The Those kinds of things are always the exigencies that, that tend hostilities, at least in the last, you know, 20, 30 years when, when Israel goes to war. What uh, the real problem they have, like I said, is Netanyahu himself. What Netanyahu should have done was uh, he, he should have assaulted immediately with everything that Israel had. And he should have done it before there was really a chance for discussion about, you know, the morality of of the of the entire situation he should have done so before you know hamas really had a an opportunity to gauge you know what the probable response would be from israel and thus you know brace themselves to be sure that you know they'd have some kind of capacity to reconstitute instead what netanyahu did was you know he issued a lot of hard talk and uncompromising statements you know then didn't do anything then threatened a, uh, a general combined arms invasion of Gaza itself, you know, then didn't do that, either on the cold feet or because it was never a serious threat in the first place. And there's, I mean, there's two things going on here on the military side, okay? I mean, and, and, and the political side is politics, you know, directly bears the military situation. All Israel's got really is, uh, is conventional deterrence, okay? Conventional deterrence, obviously, unlike nuclear deterrence, it's an ongoing enterprise, okay? And uh, the only, really the only way that it has credibility as, as policy or as, um, or as any kind of like efficacy is uh, if an actor is, is truly willing to, to uncompromisingly follow through with, with, with everything it has at its disposal as, in terms of military means, you know, when called for. That's uh, basically how the Boer Republic, you know, uh, South Africa, that's essentially how they maintained their security cordon for as long as they did. Okay, and that's traditionally how Israel manages to. Things changed a bit after the 1973 war, 
But uh, it's basically um, like operational doctrine in terms of you know how they respond to threats, particularly attacks on on the on the Israeli homeland. If you want to think about it that way, in lieu of uh, the settlement territories, the occupied territories. The second thing is there's a certain irony that's, and this is perennial. This isn't something unique to you know the modern age uh, or uh, or the information age or to the post-Cold War era or, or to the peculiarities inherent to the Israel-Palestine situation. Generally, uh, it, it favors um, an immediate action at that because then there's not time for discourse, okay? If you attack immediately upon provocation or upon, you know, threat of provocation, perceived or, or actual, one almost has a built-in alibi, you know, not unlike a heat of passion defense, that traditional common law, you know, like, well, you know, this this Hamas attack was, you know, this was horrible, and you know, Israel as as an existential security threat that's perennial, you know, like the demographic situation and other things, they had to respond immediately, you know, or risk uh, a complete uh, disintegration of, of their ability to defend in, in any kind of depth at all. That basically kind of sets the tenor of, of things. If you wait, you know, suddenly then um, questions about the origins of the conflict cycle itself, you know, questions about what, you know, a proportionate response in ethical terms would constitute, you know, emerges like things like this. The opposing force has an opportunity to capitalize on the political situation, which apparently tends towards paralysis. If there's a this delay in um in executive action tending towards a response to uh to the hostile action. I mean all of these things, okay, and like the whatever one can say about Israel and I don't have anything nice to say about Israel at all, its political system prior to um the mid to late nineties, it produced some pretty capable guys. And even Sharon himself, Ariel Sharon, uh he was an ugly individual in all kinds of ways, but you know he was he was the hero of the 1973 war, and he he was he was very effective militarily, and he kind of understood uh, he understood force very well, and he understood the kind of parameters of uh, of the strategic quagmire in, in which uh, he and his people were were boxed into, as it were. Really, Israel hasn't been able to produce competent executives since then, okay? And Ehud Barak made that point lately. I don't want to get into a, like a, a conspiratorial discussion or something. I made the point the other day of my, of my friend Ethan Ralph's kill stream. You know, the, the assassination of, of Yitzhak Rabin in 95, who was really the last... Uh, he was the last Israeli executive who truly, you know, had a, um, a conciliatory posture towards Palestine. You know, he was the last uh, after after he was killed. And I don't want to get into speculate as like why he was killed. You know, some people believe that this was quite literally a coup by hardline Zionist elements. Um, I, I mean, maybe whether it was I can't speak to that. I don't have the you know the data at my disposal to make the case or the claim one way or the other, but. Be as it may, uh, whatever the source of, uh, you know, his, uh, his, his faith. Since then, Israel's really been a one party state. And, um, these Likud types, uh, are not really on the same page as, as the military brass. 
And I mean, and that was kind of the subtext of like Ehud Barak's recent kind of critique of, of Netanyahu. It's a very weird situation. You know, you'd think that one, on, on his face, one would think that a state in the situation Israel's in, where they're taking like a harder and harder line on, on, on apartheid and things like this, you'd think that like their first choice of, of executives would be military types. But for some reason, that's not possible. That's suggestive of a, a real disconnect between uh, military leadership and, and civilian party leadership. That's a bit outside the scope, but it does indicate a house divided. To what degree, we can only speculate, because I don't know. But it can't indicate anything other than a divided house, and that, is not, that does not bode well for Israel considering the situation. I mean, I realize that was long-winded, um, but there's a lot there. Yeah, actually, this leads to another question, because um, I think we should understand the origins of, like, Israel as well, like the state of Israel, because based on my vague uh, reading of Israeli politics over the last few decades, there has been like a significant demographic shift, if you will, where Israel was like largely founded in many respects as a kind of like secular racialist state, if you will, that was comprised of a lot of labor Zionists, some liberals, and even like some like just uh, flat out communists. And even Theodore Herzl himself, the intellectual founder of Zionism, he basically fit in like a European liberal spectrum. However, over the last 50 years, Israel has become um, much more um, religious and also, you are seeing like the influx of a lot of Sephardic, uh, Mizrahim, Middle Eastern Jews, and even like some Russian Jews that have pushed the country further to the right. What would you say are some of like the biggest changes in Israeli politics that have uh, that has brought the country to this point, and what does it bode for the future of the country? What do I think has changed the kind of paradigm in in, in Israeli politics domestically? Is that what you're asking me? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the world situation in part, you know, the end of the Cold War, I mean, it changed the security paradigm in Israel in all kinds of ways, obviously, because it was no longer imperative for the United States to, you know, kind of tolerate certain excesses and demands on the part of Tel Aviv, you know, owing to Cold War exigencies related to the fact that, you know, the Arab states, um, even after the Camp David Accord, were pretty pretty solidly in in the Soviet and Warsaw Pact camp. So when that evaporated, but also there was this mass influx of uh, of Soviet Jewry after you know the Berlin Wall came down, and um, these people were very aggressive. Okay, they had a very kind of beleaguered sensibility. People my age and older remember. There's this huge campaign, and they, what what gave rise to the Jackson Vanek Amendment, you know, which which basically you know gave privileged um, status to uh, to Soviet Jewry seeking uh, you know asylum visas under the auspices that there's this whole kind of narrative claiming that like these people were at risk of of being ethnically cleansed or at risk of a pogrom. I mean that that was obviously never in the cards, but. You know, the Soviet Union did, it quite literally, it quite, it quite literally outlawed Zionist parties and, and made Zionist agitation like a literal crime. I mean, that's a whole other story worthy of discussion. You know, the Soviet Union's disposition towards Zionism after 1953 or 55 or so. But these uh, Soviet Jewry had a very, like, 
they had a, they, they, you know, they had kind of a hyper aggressive sensibility about about Zionism and about like their their role therein. Okay, and uh, that kind of that had a destabilizing effect in terms of uh, you know kind of the conceptual orientation within Israel that really kind of like precluded. I mean, all else aside, that kind of precluded you know the the kind of normalization of. Of, of political life within Israel after the Cold War, when one would think that you know things should have kind of uh, you know the kind of permanent uh, crisis modality, like should have abated somewhat, if for no other reason owing to the fact that you know the Middle East as as a as a potential battle theater that could trigger you know a general state of uh, of, of nuclear war between the superpowers. Obviously, that was off the table. I think that's part of it. That's secondly. As you know, and what you just what you just alluded to, this the Jewish state was founded like the kibbutz was kind of the original model of Jewish communal life. One of the reasons why initially in in the 1948 war, you know, the Soviet Union backed Israel. Israel basically was a uh, the emphasis. I mean, it was it was a highly racialized socialism, but um, the emphasis on the socialist aspect of of its uh, like political model. You know, and kind of very much being a planned society, like the significance of that to Israeli political life, like can't be overstated. And uh, by the end of the 20th century, that like really didn't have any percentage anymore. You know, like nobody not only was like that not popular with people, but it didn't really have a context. Like nobody, nobody by like the 1990s, early 2000s, you know, even when they were even when they were considering, you know, like radically alternative kind of political cultures that, you know, in, in, in intentionally devised uh, in countries like and Israel's like a case in point of that or was like nobody was thinking on this like nobody was thinking in terms of, like these kind of like socialist models of like the planned society okay so Israel kind of like lost its raison d'etre in that regard they didn't want to transition to like some kind of like hyper orthodox state or something because I mean that's a whole other question but I mean not only is that kind of mode of life not really agreeable to a lot of people and you know and in the present age but it also it it's um it, it it would not be compatible with uh with a power political perspective that was required to sustain Israel as like a, a racial Jewish state for a lot of reasons. So you know it's it, it's not it's, it couldn't really fall back on uh, on that on that kind of like you know theological orientation to kind of like pump new life's blood into a, a kind of stagnant system. But what it did become was, uh, you know, to, like the, the, it, it became, you know, it, it, it kind of doubled down on on a garrison state sensibility, you know, and it's kind of like racialized concept of self dramatically increased. And if you'll notice around this time too, this is around the time like ADL started publishing these these incessant appeals, you know, in, in Jewish media outlets about how like. Oh, like Jews are facing a demographic collapse, like intermarriage coupled with low birth rates. You know, Jewish blood is going to disappear from the earth, and that you didn't really used to see that. You know, like there was always there was always copy about it, like oh, Jews are under attack. You know, here and there and everywhere, and we're always outnumbered. But this kind of like existential anxiety about Jews are going to cease to exist. You know, like our racial enemies are closing in on us. This, this kind of like doomsday 
scenario being bandied that's actually quite profound because it's it's like you know it, it bespeaks like like political propaganda you know, when it, even when it's, on it's even when it's on its face preposterous and 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 self-consciously dishonest it, it does partake of you know like real kind of psychological tendencies like subconscious or not that generally reflect like basic realities like i think uh jewelry has and does like kind of see the writing on the wall in some ways really they perceive in some basic sense that there's there's a real existential crisis here you know not just relating to the fact that israel can indefinitely sustain itself as this like brand apartheid state but that it's kind of become like a pointless regime you know that's really where like the emergency has become like an end in itself i mean there's a lot there but i that's kind of the way i read it i want to go back to that point about the soviet union because it it was often forgotten that the soviet union played an integral role in uh, um the recognition of the jewish state uh what caused the pivot away from the Soviets helping Israel get diplomatic recognition to the Soviets aligning with Israel's Arab rivals throughout the Cold War. Well, essentially, after when things when when Soviet uh, and American relations bottomed out with uh, the Marshall Plan and the Berlin Crisis, um, Israel was doing two things: like it was actively it was continuing to ethnically cleanse. Um, Arabs in, incident to uh, what was called Plan D. You know, by Haganah and uh, and these elements that ultimately became IDF, and like while they were doing that, uh, they were actively courting the United States and to access not just like developmental developmental funds, but also uh, they were you know they were actively courting um, you know military aid and and everything else, and uh, you know the Soviets were. You know, they, they said, look, like, you you know, you can't, you, you're, either, you're either with the socialist camp, you're against us. And by that point, you know, like, the, the Tel Aviv had no interest in placating the Soviet Union anymore. You know, and then a few years subsequent, there was the Prague trials, which nominally, you know, the Czechoslovak Communist Party, uh, you know, was the, that was the doctor's plot trial. Like, they, like, nominally, they said, uh, you know, these men were traitors and they'd, uh, They've been planning to. They've, they've been plotting to poison, um, you know, members of the Politburo. But you know, eleven of these twelve defendants were ethnically Jewish, and at the trial, you know, it was uh, one like I mean, at the show trial, uh, much was made of the fact that like these men are Zionists. You know, their loyalty is not with the socialist camp, and and they, and they like outrage like you know like the Jewish street in Israel and elsewhere. It was all of those things, and plus too, like even even if Israel tried to kind of walk. Well, like kind of attempted to play um, the United States and, and the Soviets off against one another. The Middle East was a critical Cold War battle space, and especially because you know it was it truly was like up for grabs. Like after um you know after after the after it was formally after the former Ottoman territories were then uh, ceded to the British, which were then ceded to you know these these United Nations mandates. You know it was uh, if the Soviet Union was going to become a superpower as it did. You know, it had to take the lead in the developing world, and it wasn't going to alienate those people. It wasn't. It wasn't going to alienate potentially a billion Muslims, or in those days, or like six hundred million Muslims. You know, just to like call, just to, just to cultivate. You know, like Israel, like as as, as a kind of you know feather in the cap of its of its foreign policy um, litany. Is it true that in like the say like uh, late nineteen forties and the 
throughout the 1950s that there was still a large degree of skepticism towards Zionism um, among the American political elite? Well, that, that, that went on until the 70s, in my opinion. Like, I, we were talking about some weeks back, like the old Glory Club or some months back. This is probably on, like, July. You know, they wanted to talk about the USS Liberty incident. And uh, traditionally, the State Department, Israel itself always claimed that the State Department was biased against them and was, and was quote unquote, Arabist in its orientation. That's not actually incorrect. I don't think they were particularly pro-Arab, but they definitely they had no love for Israel. And this idea that this kind of concept in Washington circles generally, but particularly in foreign policy circles, that, you know, Israel has this kind of like special moral mandate. And no matter what, you know, we, that's got to be honored. That really wasn't emergent until the late 1970s. The 1973 war, there's a lot that can be gleaned from that, not just about the Cold War, but about, and not just about, you know, the kind of changing paradigm of uh, uh, militarily, by which, you know, the Camp David Accords ultimately brought parties to the table. But there's, a, you know, the 73 war, arguably that's when uh, NATO and Warsaw Pact were closest to a general nuclear war. This sack NORAD reached DEFCON 3. You know, the Soviets uh, deployed um, tactical nuclear warheads to the port of Alexandria in Egypt. On the Nixon tapes, that's what Nixon's referring to when he says to Kissinger, like, you know, when he says, and I'm paraphrasing, we, we can't blow up the world to placate these fucking people. You know, these people, meaning, you know, Israel. There were, there were not warm feelings between them. Um, the American executive branch and Israel. What changed um, is it, it, it a constellation of factors, okay? Like the, the whole kind of like a Holocaust mythology that started jumping off in earnest really in the 70s. There was actually like a TV movie, like miniseries called Holocaust. That's where that term comes from. Like nobody invoked that term, you know, before that. And it, it, it certainly didn't come from the war crimes trials record or something. So and the uh, and, and Israel uh, very much capitalized on that too, like deliberately, you know, to to, to try to shore up their own um, credibility, which in those days, particularly uh, in the wake of Vietnam and stuff, like people were very much turning against uh, what was viewed as kind of like uh, abuses in in the developing world, you know, by um, you know by quote unquote like racist powers, like over like foolish and one dimensional. That that was a mistake that was. You know, Israel was very much looked at as, as a state that was engaged in dirty cool and not and not really worthy of, of people's sympathy. And then also keep in mind that, you know, I made the point to people again and again, despite everybody who seemed to think that the CIA is some seriously powerful thing. The CIA has been a joke for decades. The Gates Committee hearings really kind of quashed whatever mandate it had. The U.S. Uh, strategic nuclear doctrine and its kind of general defense policy from uh, the end of the 70s onward really was really was directed by what became known as the Team B coterie. You know, and these people very much had Reagan's ear. I mean, I mean, they absolutely had Reagan's ear. Reagan was relying on on these people and kind of their policy vision in lieu of that, which was suggested by you know the conventional intelligence apparatus. Exempting DIA, defense intelligence, always remained relevant. But, you know, these guys became permanently insinuated into defense apparatus and policy 
in the National Defense Apparatus and policy planning circles. And these guys were almost all Jewish and they were all Zionists, okay? And uh, these guys uh, were the core of like the neocon uh, faction that was emergent too. You know, that was basically like, you know, uh, the guys who'd been, um, been like lifelong, you know, kind of like left-leaning Democrats, but the Cold War and they're like rabid anti-Sovietism and what they perceived as detente being like a capitulation to to the Stalinist bloc is, I mean, that, that, that they just considered that to be, you know, unconscionable and something they couldn't abide, you know, so they, 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 they defected to, a to, you know, the right-wing circles, right? America passes for right-wing circles. You know, so it's like all of those things. And then it, um, you know, they, James Baker was kind of the last real Secretary of State, in my opinion. I mean, he was an, he was an extraordinarily serious guy, but the, you know, the Department of State subsequent to 92, it just became kind of like a joke, you know, like, you know, and, and it remains to this day. Like, there's not even, America doesn't even really practice diplomacy anymore. You know, so it's like the, it's all those things that is mentioned, you know, after the Cold War, you don't really have talented men who gravitate towards governments. There certainly isn't uh, some system that trains guys like George Kennan or James Baker, you know, to work in the Foreign Service. Even if there was, it would be it'd be quickly kind of shut down by these kinds of competing apparatus like you have, uh, you know, in the Ivies and things. And what they do is they crank out, they crank out, you know, regime loyal people who have... um crazy ideas about, you know, socially engineering um, the world by way of violence, you know, and targeting, you know, Darul Islam and Russia for for destruction and things like that. And this is a very Jewish enterprise, okay? I think the zeitgeist is shifting against Israel, but as it stands, like, yeah, what I, what I just flushed out, I think, is basically the reason for that kind of paradigm shift in Israel's favor in the later 20th century. You're uh, based in Chicago, and generally speaking, the Israeli-American uh, relationship um, is associated with like New York due to the large presence of like a Jewish population there, especially that's very pro-Zionist. Uh, would you say that Chicago played an underrated role in the forging of like the U.S.'s otherwise intimate relationship with Israel? Chicago is a strange place. It's not just the third largest city in the country. It's like literally like in the center of North America, you know? So it's, I mean, it's on the largest freshwater body on this planet. So it's, you know, it's like on this inland ocean of fresh water. There's a very large like Jewish population here. And there's a lot of Jewish money here, okay? Like, I don't mean that in, like, crude terms. What I mean is that, like, there's a lot of, like, pack money and stuff like that. You know, and that's the reason why guys, like, you know, but the thing is, like, the guys kind of at the helm of that, like, Rom, they're kind of, like, low-key. The big Jewish club here, um, that was, like, the kind of Jewish equivalent of, like, the, the, the Union League Club or something, was is called the Standard Club. And, I mean, to this day, it's, like, like that. Like, Catholic ethnic people here, like, power players, you know, like, the Irish have their own club, you know, like polls of their own club and stuff and so on. The uh, uh, white Protestants, like people like me, generally they're up in Lake County, you know, the people have clout, like around like Lake Forest, you find like the vestigial kind of aspect of that. But like the Jews, like they have the standard club and um, guys like Lester Crown in the past, guys, um, people like the Pritzkers now, I mean, for the Pritzkers are all fucked up. Like they're a bad example because they're, they're like this bizarre kind of degenerate fucking clan but like rom and like and like lester crown formerly they're kind of the 
like like the Jewish power brokers, it, like Chicago Jewish power brokers are like more in that model than they are and always have been than some kind of like East Coast type guy, you know, who's like getting get, get taking taking handshake shots with the president and you know like um very much the forefront of kind of issuing a. Hardline policy statements on on things and like making demands, you know, on what he thinks um the the, the political tax should be, but everything about like Chicago power is like understated. Like I, I, I make the point to people because everybody's always got like organized crime on the brain. Like the Chicago outfit is not like what caused a notion on the East Coast. Like it was always like a different thing. In some ways, it was always like more brutal. It was always less deliberately glamorous. It, it was always kind of like ever present, you know, the same time hidden. Like there's a lot of stuff like that in Chicago. And uh, like Jewish power is kind of the same, it's kind of in the same vein, you know, like it's like you brush up against it and um, you run into these guys, like literally, you know, who are like big players within that milieu. But uh, it's, it's kind of like invisible, but ever present. That's the best way you can characterize it. So yeah, I, I think it's understated, at least nationally. Like people here know what's up, but yeah. So going back to like the U.S.'s more nuanced relationship with Israel um, in the early days of uh, of like the Jewish state, were there people in the government that were actually sympathetic to the Palestinian cause? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think generally the Department of State was. I think uh, Dean Ross was certainly sympathetic to Arabs, you know, like he, as, as people who suffered a lot and people who were going to play, people who were going to play an important role, you know, moving forward as uh, the world, you know, as, the, as kind of the, the, the world reconstituted, you know, after the First and Second World Wars. And obviously, uh, whether it was openly stated or not, the you know the issue of Palestine and the fortunes of the Palestinian people played into that. So I mean, yeah, yeah, definitely. It's um, Arab cultures are very, very, very different. I mean, people forget in this country at least, or maybe you know, when we say Arab, I mean, yeah, there's there's there's, there's an ethno linguistic kind of commonality in very basic terms, but you know, there's going to Arabs of basically every race. There's they differ dramatically. Like some Arab cultures are truly high cultures that are like very beautiful and noble. Like some are very, very kind of backwards and particularly admirable at all. Like uh, I mean, I guess it's probably just mostly like internet guys or whatever. But these people just like trash one with Arabs. Like they, they really don't get it. And there's a reason why these um, there's a reason why there's like there's this, these mythologies around guys like Lawrence of Arabia, who who kind of like went native and some like kind of like you know Walter Kurtz way like among the Arabs. I mean, there's a, there's a reason that people are like white men and others are drawn into that gravity by that gravity. I mean. Part of that's probably like Anglo-Saxon romanticism for, for kind of like desert-dwelling, like pious warrior people or something. We're probably always like seeking that out in some way, but more to bring it back from kind of dreamy rationale. I yeah, there was there, there was definitely openness, sympathy for Palestine, if not, I mean, both on its own terms as well as you know contra Israel, which frankly is not a particularly sympathetic state at all. So. What um in particular, because like when you look at the, like the Palestinian resistance movement, it um contrary to popular belief, it it was actually quite secular in its outset and it had a good yep. deal of Christians. What caused it to transition towards being more like Islamist in nature and aligned with like Sunni 
interests and even made it more willing to cooperate with non-Sunni powers such as Iran? There's a couple of things there. The Arab resistance generally, these, uh, these non-state actors like the Popular Front for Liberation of Palestine, General Command, they were based in Syria and they were very, they, they made a big impact on the battle space in um, the, uh, in the Lebanese Civil War. And before that, they'd very much been proxies of the Warsaw Pact. They hijacked this Dutch airliner and um, the PFLP hitters, they were wearing Che Guevara shirts. Like, that's something, just as an aside, like the Che shirt, that didn't come from, like, fucking idiots who, like, like, like college, like, Marxists and stuff. Like, it, it, it originally was the pilot for the liberation of Palestine. And the reason why they were wearing those shirts is kind of declare, like, solidarity with, you know, with, uh, with the global, you know, like, Marxist-Leninist uh, resistance or movement. These other organizations, like the, like, like the Abu Nidal organization, like um, they similarly, you know, they they did a basically like pro-communist bent. Arabism was a uh, you know even long after Nasser was in the grave, this Arabism was invoked uh, as an effort to kind of not not just kind of like unify diverse peoples who uh, were kind of forever um, divided by custom and and heritage. A lot of these pro-Palestine uh, resistance actors fell back on that kind of mythology. But all this stuff, uh, this stuff was all kind of contrived, you know. And um, what the Islamic awakening, which uh, the 1979 seizure of the Grand Mosque in Saudi Arabia by uh, Salafi elements and um, the invasion of Afghanistan by the Red Army, in response, you know, the, the like, like pious Muslims from, uh, you know, dozens of nations answering the call of jihad and the, the Islamic revolution in 1979 in Iran, which ironically, although it was a Shia revolution, really animated the Sunni street in terms of potentialities. This overshadowed anything that, you know, the Cold War kind of secular Arab political actors had accomplished. So as the Cold War came to a close, the only remaining like men standing who had any like real clout were, were like Islamists. Okay. Now, interestingly, across the sectarian divide, like one of the reasons why the Syrian Ba'ath Party has endured and why it was always at odds with the Iraqi Ba'ath Party. The Iraqi Ba'ath Party was, despite its claim to um you know, to being this kind of like non-sectarian, like Arabist or institution, you know, and that, and that, and, and the conspicuous uh, placing of people like Tariq Aziz in high, in high places, you know, he, he was a Catholic. Um, the Iraqi bath was always like a Sunni party. And that's why, like, when, you know, when, when the Iraqi civil war jumped off, a huge amount of these Iraqi generals, you know, like, like clicked up with ISIS because it was just like a natural kind of progression. In contrast, the Syrian bath, you know, it was always, it was always very much a constellation of Shia, Alawite, Christian, Druze, you know, and like minority elements. But, um, you know, and this, uh, and the Iran Iraq war plays into this too, like, you know, self conscious sectarian identities, you know, surpassing, um, these kinds of contrived secular ones that were kind of superimposed over cultural and, and ethnic realities, you know, by people who were trying to sort of like force the Cold War paradigm 
under these you know into these conflict situations to try and um to try and engineer an outcome you know beneficial to one one side or the other and in, in in the global struggle between you know the West and Warsaw Pact. That's a fascinating topic and it's complicated, but that's kind of the short answer. And that's why too the uh, I think you're going to see a, ret- a resurgence somewhat. Not in the same way, but of uh, a semi of somewhat secular Arab non-state actors. Some of that was emergent in the Syrian civil war. Some of that's emergent in Yemen right now, but it's more it's more spontaneous and organic. But it's um the, the pendulum always kind of swings back to the center. You know, once the outward momentum sort of stabilizes, and so I think that I think there's something to that too. Where can my listeners keep up with your work? Sure. You can always find me on my website, thomas777.com. That's number seven, H-O-M-A-S, 777.com. On my Substack, you can find the podcast, the Mind Phaser podcast, as well as some of my longer form writing. It's realthomas777.substack.com. I got an active account on X, formerly Twitter. You can find me there at real capital all caps r e a l underscore number seven lowercase h o m a s seven seven seven. That's about it. On the Substack, we got an active chat. You don't need to subscribe to the Substack to join it. It's totally free. So people that you, I, I always respond to people who post stuff there, but, but it's also like we got uh, we got a core of guys and girls who who put up really interesting stuff. You know, some of the other content creators, but just but other people. You know, just uh, here in the United States and in Europe and in the Middle East. You know, just there's it's, it, I'm, I'm very pleased that it's so active. So and it's not at all censored by uh, I've, I've been very pleased with Substack and their and and their ethics in that regard. But yeah, that's that's where you can find me 24-7. All right, great stuff, man. And to my listeners, as always, thank you guys for tuning in. And with that, El Nino has spoken.